My name is Peter Dahl, and I care about two things, ballroom dancing and animal documentaries, but also podcasting and foreign language films. This is Inch High Hurdle, an unrefined podcast dabbling in refined taste. And this is Shanghu Ernu, or Ash is Purest White, Jia Zhang Ke's 2018 Chinese crime drama masterpiece. So I came to this film just a few months after its release, as is the case with a lot of movies from China. It kind of flew under the radar for American audiences. You kind of have to be in that world, you know, seeking out these sort of things to find them. And um, I think the first time I watched it, I might have gotten it through the Netflix DVD service, which is something that I still have and I love it. And you should make use of it, too, if you like to be able to track down movies that are harder to find on streamers anyway. Um, and the first time I watched it, I liked it, but I wasn't totally in on it. I think that it wasn't quite what I was expecting, and the pacing and plotting was not what I had come to expect from crime films, especially, I think was what felt a little off to me. Um, but what I would learn is that it was not being really familiar with Jia Zhang Ke's style. That was sort of what was tripping me up. So I liked it enough, and there was enough in it that was compelling for me that I sought out more of Jia Zhang Ke's work. And it was especially after seeing A Touch of Sin that I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it now. And the style, the tone, the pacing, the visuals, they made a lot more sense to me. And I revisited Ash's Purest White. And the second time I watched it, I loved it. And I've watched it more times since. And it's become really one of my favorite films of the last 10 years. I really, really love this film. Uh, I could talk about it all day. I'll only talk about it for about 30 minutes today. Hopefully, if you haven't seen it, I'll be able to convince you to, to give it a look. So here's what you need to know. This is the part of the show where I tell you what you need to know. Ash's Purest White follows Xiao, a young woman who is dating Bin, a crime boss in Daytong, which is an old mining town. When Bin is attacked by a rival gang, Xiao commits a crime in his defense that lands her in prison for five years. Although Bin does not visit her while she is incarcerated, Xiao emerges from prison with the sole mission of finding her way back to the man she loves. This film premiered in 2018 at the Cannes Film Festival, where it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is the festival's top prize. And it was the third film of jazz to be nominated for this prestigious award. It lost in 2018 to a film that will be on this podcast someday, safe to say. This film is available to rent, and it's included in an Amazon Prime subscription. So if you got Amazon Prime, you can watch this movie for free. All right, so a little bit about the director. Jia Zhangke is the preeminent director in China's so-called sixth generation of filmmakers. Basically, the difference between the fifth and sixth generations is this. The fifth generation made big, colorful films like wuxia epics, wuxia, W-U-X-I-A, or sometimes W-U-S-H-U, wushu, um, is just another way to say kung fu. They made big, colorful kung fu epics. And that would include films like Zhang Zhimou's Hero, um, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And 
might make it onto this podcast someday. It's possible. Um, that'd be a fifth uh, generation film. And these are films largely agreeable to both the Chinese government and also Western audiences. The sixth generation, on the other hand, is characterized by a minimalist and realist style with subjects and themes that are often in tension with the Chinese government's vision for cinema. Jia came to widespread success after an initial underground career, meaning that he was making his films without uh, the approval of the state. And even as he's become one of the most important filmmakers in the world, his films have continued to push the party line. Uh, really some of the things that he's been able to include in his films, some of the subjects that he's touched on are extremely controversial when it comes to what the Chinese government would want from cinema. Um, but he's uh, able to toe that line and is able to continue to make really compelling stuff with the approval of the state um, that can get to a wide audience, but is still um, isn't really isn't holding any pulling any punches. So why should you watch this film? This is the part of the show where I tell you why you should, you know, watch the film. Ashes Pierce White is a complex work of art, like a calligraphy character. It's a balance of sweeping strokes and precise ornamentations. It is, like so many of my favorite films are, a both and sort of deal. On the grander level, this is a love story, a keen observation of modern Chinese society, and an epic tale of survival and self-determination. But it is also in the details, the little things, the elements that seem superfluous to the story, but are essential to the film. That's also what makes this film great. It's gritty, it's minimalist and realistic, but it is also beautiful, fun, and kind of bizarre. It is certainly not an action film, but it does have one of my favorite fight scenes of all time. We can have a deep discussion about its themes, or we can just sit around talking about it like, hey, I like that one part when, and oh, it's kind of cool when this happens, and did you think about this one thing? Did you notice that? The result is an immersive experience. And to top it off, it's all shot on 35mm film, and it's just gorgeous to look at. Why else should you watch it? There's the performance of Xiao Tao. Early in Jia Zhangke's career, the actress Xiao Tao became his muse, and now she appears in all of his films, and they eventually got married. She has become one of the greatest actresses in the world, and this is her best performance. The range of actions and emotions required is astounding, as is her depiction of the character's evolution. She's measured, understated and subtle, but also dynamic when it's called for. She reflects the most relatable experiences, like being hot or cold or hungry, but also emotions that we might have not felt in a very long time, if ever. It's a movie star performance. She's just someone you want to watch work. If you are drawn to performances, like I am, she alone is worth the price of admission. But like I said, it's free. Um, all right, so this is the part of the show where I explain some of the cultural differences that might make for some initial confusion for American audiences. I had this idea where I'd have Patrick Starr shouting, what kind of place is this? As the stinger for this part of the segment, but I'm still working out the music and um, sound portion of this. I'm such a noob that I don't really know how to do this in a way that works nicely. So just pretend. Okay, so the presence of guns is really important in this movie for a few reasons. 
And one of them is that gun ownership in China is very restrictive and laws are very punitive. This is not the time nor the place to litigate America's gun laws or lack thereof, but suffice to say that a civilian carrying a gun in films from many, many other countries means something very different than it does in America. So before you watch this movie, know that having, let alone using a gun in this context, is a really big deal. Pop music, it's a big component in jazz films. As Sean Gilman of the Vancouver International Film Festival writes, quote, music has been integral to his characters' lives. Not just their feelings, but their visions of themselves, and in turn, the ways we in the audience perceive them. A source of pure aesthetic joy in often dreary and lonely landscapes, music in Jaws movies is aspirational, a dream of freedom and cosmopolitan wonder, a balm against the harsh realities of modern capitalism. Jazz musical choices are always associational. They are meant to remind the viewer of the time and place they first heard them, whether on a cheap radio in the first days after the Cultural Revolution, or a bootleg VCD of an important Hong Kong blockbuster, or on a pair of iPod headphones shared with your mom. End quote. So, uh, this is also one of the things that distinguishes Ja from some of his sixth generation peers. He uses pop elements to self consciously fracture the realist minimalist style. But the problem now with using pop songs from China, well, obviously it's not gonna have the same effects on American audiences. Um, there are two main ones to be aware of in this film. So the first is a super famous love ballad that we might loosely translate as um, how much love can come back. In the film, when the audience is singing along with a small time rock band, it's not because that rock band is popular in Fengji, it's because it's covered by all manner of artists and everyone knows this song. There's a, a YouTube video that I am kind of obsessed with. Uh, it's a clip from a Chinese game show, which is a derivation of the mass singer that's called the hidden singer. Um, and, or it's actually more properly translated as like, who is the big song God or something like that, which is delightful. But I love this clip of, uh, they're, they're doing how much love can come back. And the big reveal is Alan Tam coming out and singing it. I just, I love it. I will put, I'm going to put links to both these songs, um, in the show notes. And I'll also put a link to this video because yeah, I am kind of a little bit obsessed with it. You probably won't be, but that's okay. We can like different things. The other song is called Drunk for Life, but it's also just known as the theme song from The Killer. Um, it's sung by Sally Yeh. And um, this is important, uh, not just because Ja is an admirer of John Woo, the director of The Killer, um, who was one of the preeminent action filmmakers of the 80s and 90s, but also because the killer is about a badass hitman's efforts to care for a woman in need. This is important considering what happens in Ash's Purest White. Speaking of the killer, it stars Chow Yun-Fat, one of the world's biggest action stars, or maybe not anymore, but at one time, um, certainly at the time of the killer, who also appears in a film called Tragic Hero, Hero which is a film that Bin and his gang are watching in one brief scene in Ashes Purest White. Okay, geography is tricky when watching Chinese films. The country is huge and very diverse, and so places and place names matter. If you're watching an American film and a Texan and a Bostonian travel to New York and have a conversation about Florida, you'll know what connotations come with all of that. 
This is something I have trouble keeping up with in Chinese films. For the purposes of this film, Daitong, the city where this begins, is an old mining town. I say town, but millions of people live there, hashtag China. Daitong is in Shanxi, one of the northern provinces in the country. I'm not certain, but I believe Xiao's prison is some distance even farther north. When the film moves to Fengji, that is about 1,500 miles from Daitong. All right, so rivers, they're important in China. That's not to say that they're not important in America or that America doesn't have very nice rivers, calm down. But Chinese rivers leave a much greater mark on the civilization around them. The Yangtze is probably the one you missed on your medical school, did I say medical school? On your middle school geography quiz after rattling out Nile, Amazon, and Mississippi. But it's arguably the most important river in the world. Okay, next, Chinese men smoke a lot of cigarettes. We don't need to get into all the statistics, but suffice to say, all the smoking done in a Chinese film, including this one, isn't an indication of time period, class, or occupation in the way it might be watching an American film or series. I, you know, I, I don't think I ever stop noticing in Mad Men how many freaking cigarettes they smoke. It's insane. And they're in the office. That's even, it's even weirder to me than the drinking. So nope, nope, take that back. Nope. Definitely getting hammered at your day job is weirder than smoking at your day job. Take it. Okay, something to note about food and eating in Chinese culture. Eating fast is not rude. Um, we don't want to make generalizations, but uh, in uh, my understanding is that Chinese people often will eat quickly while the food is hot. Um, not everyone eats like you. It's okay. People play a lot of mahjong in China and many other countries around the world. That's the tile-based game they're playing here. So if you watch a Chinese film, you'll often see people playing mahjong. It's a tile-based game that I don't know the rules to, but we kind of like to learn the rules to someday. It seems kind of fun. Without spoiling anything, I can tell you there's a brief UFO sighting in this film. Don't be thrown off. Jia does stuff like this sometimes in his movies. It's a kind of playful moment that you can't really get away with in serious American films. And this is a serious film, let's be clear. Okay, so this is the part of the podcast that makes the most sense if you've seen the film. By that, I mean the upcoming part of the podcast. So this is where we get spoiler warning. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I would love it if you'd watch it and then come back and listen to this part. If you really don't mind movies being spoiled, you can listen, but stuff may not make sense to you. Um, but, you know, do what you want. I'm just glad you're listening. But actually, I would be even more happy if you would watch the film because that's one of the points of this whole podcast. So um, anyway, in this part, I'll discuss some of the themes, character scenes and filmmaking choices that make this film Great. I'm kind of working on a way to set up segments for this part, so forgive me if this seems very rambly and discursive in this form. So, one of the first places I go with this film is its treatment of gender, masculinity, and power. The early scenes initially positioned Din and Xiao in their archetypal roles of the tough, capable crime boss and his beautiful, charming, but ultimately harmless, maybe even helpless, doting girlfriend. Just one example is the scene in which Brother Eryang, Bin's superior, visits and, after being charmed by Xiao, has been dismissed her so they can talk business. Xiao goes to dance while the men, who are clearly respected, capable figures in the Zhang Hu underworld, talk about business. It's just about the most efficient way to show you that Xiao isn't really part of this tough guy world. She's just Bin's girlfriend. We 
do see Shallow's capacity for ferocity and action in some moments in the early parts of the film. But the real turning point is, of course, the motorcycle ambush scene, which we will talk much more about later. Bin's masculinity is on display as he steps from the car and battles the gang quite capably before their numbers are just too much. But Shell saves his life by bravely using the gun to scare them off. And then she doubles down on this by taking the charge for him. From this point on, Xiao begins to live, as she later says, as a Zhang Hu, using cunning and sheer force of will to navigate her new situation, often doing so at the expense of men. Bin, on the other hand, shrinks as Xiao grows, ignoring her calls, hiding in an office when she comes to find him in Hubei, and having her girl excuse me, and having his girlfriend tell her the news. It's a really good shot of um, of him hiding in the room when the accountant comes in and puts in the golf clubs. I'm not certain, but I kind of wonder if Steve McQueen uh, cop copied this or paid homage to this in Widows with the big reveal about one of the husbands in that film. Don't want to spoil that one. Won't cover on this podcast, but man, is that an underappreciated film. Watch Widows. Steve McQueen, great one. Anyway, so a generous uh, interpretation of the scene later in the film in which Xiao finally confronts Bin might see Bin as being full of regret for having moved on, but I read it instead as him being a little bit of a weasel, hardly being the honorable mob boss you might have thought him to be early on. Their new directions become all the more clear in the final scenes when, years later, Bin has become a cripple after suffering from a stroke, and it is Xiao who now wields power in the Zhang Hu world. Xiao shows her strength further by taking in Bin rather than rejecting him, and she takes on the caregiver role by helping him learn to walk again. Perhaps unable to bear this debt, Bin leaves. The development of the power dynamics can be tracked by following, well, Bin's gun primarily, but really just the symbol of a gun. A gun first appears when Bin settles a dispute between two of his associates. They're having a petty argument over who owes who money. After one of them produces a gun and dares the other to shoot him, Bim calmly takes the gun and tells them basically to grow up. Afterwards, Xiao inspects the gun, clearly having no idea what she's doing holding it. This is a really great uh, cut to opening title slide moment too. Especially after you've seen the film, I think. It works even better the second time. It next appears as Xiao and Bin dance. It falls out of his waistband, a reminder of the dangerous world they live in, but only temporary as he puts it back in his belt and they continue to dance. After the injury to his leg, Bin decides to show Xiao how to use a gun in what is maybe the most romantic scene of the film. It's his way of bringing her into his world as much as either of them is comfortable with. Bin is still the man with the gun, but... Maybe for the first time, Xiao feels like she has some sort of ability to take control. And so, we return again to the ambush scene. Bin is able to use his feet and fists to fight for a while, but the decisive action is Xiao's willingness to take the gun herself and leave the safety of the car. When she holds the gun, she is the one with all the power. The presence of a gun is so effective in part because it's not just another gun. In many films, firearms are a dime a dozen, and a simple handgun might seem more like a water pistol. But each time the gun appears, there's no mistaking it for the dangerous tool that it is. It's scary in the first Mahjong scene. It's so loud and percussive when it's fired. When it falls out of Bin's waistband, it reminds you that 
it's a heavy piece of metal. And this heavy piece of metal acts as a symbol for Xiao's development, but also as a key to part of the film's commentary on society. So Xiao uses it to stop violence, but the authorities hardly care when they sentence her to five years in prison. That's the crime that goes punished, not all the underworld dealings and not the murder of Brother Uryang. But the gun also is a symbol of Xiao's entry into the Zhanghu world. Left to fend for herself after leaving prison, Xiao resorts to cunning and deception, notably when she tricks the husband at the resort, when she sneaks into the wedding, and when she steals the moped taxi. None of these actions are malicious or put anyone in danger, but they are, well, wrong from a certain point of view, even criminal. But that's what she has to do to survive. What's she supposed to do? Be an honest citizen like her father, drunkenly tilting at the windmills of big mining companies? She can't even go back to living the easy life of a gangster's girlfriend. And we should be indignant on her behalf. Shaw is likable and a fundamentally decent person who's on a bit of a losing streak. We don't care that she tricks the taxi driver and steals his bike, even if it's illegal and that guy probably gets arrested later on. For the purposes of this film, fine. What does it say about a society in which people like this, like Xiao, need to behave this way in order to just survive? One of the other societal themes that is woven through the story is, broadly speaking, change. Similar to Mountains May Depart, one of Xiao's other films, uh, there's a large time jump here, and it's clear that the characters are not always comfortable with the changes that come their way, like the rising tide in the Three Gorges. Without being quite nostalgic about the old days, the future is presented with some measure of skepticism. Note the scene in which Ja attempts to embarrass Bin, and that's Ja the character, not the director, that the reaction of many is to take out their modern phones and try to film it. It's one of the crueler impulses that has quickly become ingrained in modern consciousness. Okay, so let's lump that all together under themes. Let's focus on character while combining it with what may eventually become its own segment, which is how Americans would get this wrong. Okay, so basically if this film was made by an American, it's easy to see how it would go wrong from the ground up. Most likely it would be Bin's story or some type of diptych more in the vein of Goodfellas. We're generally much more interested in the gangster than in his girlfriend. However, in the case that the American film did have the female lead as the central character, there are some clear ways in which it could have gone wrong. Xiao is an excellent character, and it's really rare to find female characters like this. She gets to have a full character arc, and while a man is central to her motivation, her arc is not in service to his. When she is rejected by Bin, she does not do one of the two things that would seem like natural plot points, either find a different, better man, or become some sort of broken madwoman. She's distraught, of course, but her response is to take on even more agency, and by the end of the film, she's the one with the power. It feels totally natural, too. As she strides about the mahjong tables, we can totally believe the men there would respect her. It's been obvious from the first scenes that people just genuinely like this person, and she's shown such levels of cunning and even ruthlessness to pair with that likability. It's all in line with her character. It's a natural development that did not need some sort of violent, sudden metamorphosis. It's also significant, though, that she maintains effeminacy even as she overcomes the usual strictures of femininity, and that she's beautiful while not being hypersexualized. 
how many times have we seen a character like this either be essentially a penisless man or be some version of a sultry, sexy femme fatale? The balance struck with Xiao is certainly a product of the long working and personal relationship of Xiao Tao and Jia Zhangke. He lets his wife be beautiful, but doesn't ever push it to the point of being distracting. In short, Xiao is a remarkable character, brought to life by an astonishing performance, and it is almost certain that in other hands this character would go oh so wrong. All right, time to talk about that ambush scene. From the first time I watched this film, this scene has been one of my all-time favorites. It comes about so unexpectedly. Xiao is in the back seat, trying a cigar that the accountant offered to Bin as a thank you gift. She capriciously asks for a menu item that is a long drive away, and Bin acquiesces. But then the threat, the threat quickly escalates as the motorcycles surround the car, and suddenly, Jia throws us into a wushu film as the driver steps out and fights against overwhelming odds. He does well, initially, but is eventually beaten down in brutal fashion. Bin then joins the fight in about the most badass way possible, as he wraps his hand before punching an enemy through the window, then exiting the car and kicking serious ass. Jia films both of these sequences with long takes, which are typical of his style, and it works so perfectly here. It's artful and brutal. It feels balletic like a wushu film, but also gritty like a gangster film. By this point, one might almost forget that Xiao is still in the car. When the camera returns to her, we find her watching on in fear as the sound of the gang beating her boyfriend's senseless crescendos to a savage din. Then, in a moment of decisive action, she takes the gun and chambers around, which, I mean, always cool. Like Ben showed her, steps from the car, raises the gun, and fires. The sound continues to ring out as silence falls. Then she lowers the gun to aim at Bin's attackers and walks assuredly towards them. They back away in fear. It's very similar to several moments in Jia's other film, A Touch of Sin, and has me convinced that no one stages people pointing guns at other people better than Jia. It's such a great moment of tension because we, like the characters, don't know if Xiao is about to shoot someone. She certainly has intent in her eyes. We, like Xiao, should also recognize that whether or not she has saved Bin's life, she has also made a costly decision. For good measure, she raises and fires again, and the scene ends focused on the half-smoked cigar, the last bit of Xiao's life of wide-eyed innocence, and Bin's blood dripping from the hood ornament. It's an all-time <sighs> moment. What an absolutely riveting scene enjoyable on its own surface level merits and for what it represents to the story. Okay, lastly, let's blow through a few of my favorite little things in the movie. Things that the movie is certainly not about, but help it make but help make it the enjoyable work of art that it is. Okay, first, I love Brother Uryang, mostly because of the line, there are two things I care about, and that's ballroom dancing and animal documentaries. Just beautiful. And for the fact that this OG really brings his own ballroom dancers around with them. Um, and both of the ballroom dancers are like kind of hot in like a very um, elegant way. I love them. Um, maybe the first time you watch this, you're like, oh, the fuck is up with these dancers, even at his funeral. But on a rewatch, it's such a fabulous little touch. I also like Uryang as an example of the mob boss who doesn't have to do much for you to know that he's a powerful man. Scorsese nails this uh, in Mean Streets with the uncle and in Goodfellas with Polly, and then he subverts it in The Irishman in a fascinating way. 
Next, dancing to YMCA has never looked so fun. Next, these guys are a rock band, but also have a lion and a tiger? Next, I love the driver. It helps build Ben's character to see how dedicated the driver is to him. And it's kind of cool at the end of the film when we see him pushing Ben around in the wheelchair. Next, okay, absolutely fantastic exchange about cigars being healthy and all the knives being produced for a cigar cutter is awesome, especially following up when they all produce lighters to try light a cigarette for Ben earlier. Next, I like the way Xiao eats at the wedding. She eats like someone who is super hungry, but not in that super annoying way that movies always make hungry characters eat. I hate that. Next, great movie for, I kind of just want to smoke cigarettes and eat Chinese food. However they pulled it off, the glasses barely hanging onto Jia's face when Xiao smashes the teapot on his head is fantastic. Next. The way the fake UFO hunter ignores the one guy to just keep talking to Xiao is always funny. Next. Xiao trying to get in the door at the accountant's building is perfect. All right, that's going to conclude episode one of Inch High Hurdle. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to try to do better next time. And remember that we're all just passengers in the universe.